It has been a long week. There are many of you, I'm sure, that have things to do today. I hope that it would be okay with you if I didn't preach today. Okay, so I, I figured there'd be a chuckle, and I wanted to wait long enough for the chuckles to turn to like awkward, what's going on? So sometimes when something that you expect to happen doesn't happen, uh, that non-event becomes one of the biggest news stories of the day. In our passage today, David was expected to do something, and it didn't end up happening, and it got recorded in all of human history. When was the last time you heard a king do nothing and it got recorded in all of human history? So um, from time to time, I hear that I preach a sermon and it's, it's neat. I, I hear that you talk about it kind of thing and uh, maybe even compliments make their way back to me. Like somebody will say, I wasn't there. So-and-so said it was good. That, that's cool. That means a lot. I assume the same thing happens in the opposite direction. You know, like, man, it was a real dud today. Two minutes, 47 seconds in, I was asleep. New world record. You know, and you pass those things on, right? I'm just going to make an assumption that had I walked out of the building and not preached today, it would have been, that non-sermon would have been the most talked about sermon that I've ever given here. It's, that's my guess, right? Because sometimes when what you expect to happen doesn't happen, uh, it becomes a big news story. And, and in our passage today, there uh, is something that's shocking. Uh, David says he's going to do something. It makes sense. Um, it, it seems like a no-brainer. Go ahead and do this thing. And then it doesn't happen. A and as one commentator put it, that act of not doing, that act of nothing, um, is one of the most significant acts of David's kingship. So it would be a great mistake to think that because nothing ends up happening, that there's nothing going on in the passage. Actually, there's incredibly significant things that God is doing behind the scenes. It's, it's one of the biggest events of David's kingship, even though it's described by nothing. You can't go look at it at a monument. There's no stones that speak to this act of what David did, and yet it's extremely significant. And so I want us to think about it, because it speaks to who God is and what he's doing in David's life. So I want to talk to you about your life and what is God doing in your life. In, in what we call the Christian life, I, I want to ask you about this experience of the Christian life. I want to ask you about this experience um, of being shaped and molded by God. I want to ask you this question. Is, is living the Christian life something that you are doing for God? Or is it something that God is doing in you? You know what I mean by that? 
This, this, this process of becoming more like Christ, living the Christian life and being spiritually formed, is it something that you are doing for God or is it something that God is doing in you? If you were to describe the Christian life as building, let's call it building a house, there'll be some tie-ins to the passage here, uh, is, is living the Christian life, are you building a house for God or is God building the house. To put it another way, are you the builder trying to build a house for God, or is God the builder who is building you into his house? Which direction does that spiritual formation go? And I want us to think about that as we jump into the passage this morning. Second Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, let me, let me stop right here and just catch us up a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah and the cart, as the cart, as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem. We skipped over chapter 5. I referenced it very briefly that in chapter 5, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, it, there's this historical note, as the commentator puts it, that, that David was king in Hebron for uh, about seven years when he he became king at age 30, and so he's king of Judah. But then after seven years, at the age of 37, the leaders come to him and say, we want to appoint you king over all of Israel. And the kingdom is unified, and now he needs a new capital city. Hebron won't work anymore. And there's a city called Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem was occupied by the Jebusites. It hadn't yet been conquered. People avoided the city. It wasn't a particularly strategic place to be. And yet, 2 Samuel 5 records how David goes and conquers it. And he makes it the capital city. It's conveniently located between the north and the south. It will be a very strategic now in a unified kingdom. It's uh, uh, close by a proximity of major travel. And David is now going to set up his kingdom there, and he will rule from Jerusalem. That's why he wants to bring the ark there. He realizes that not only will this be the political center of Jerusalem, but it will be the spiritual center of Israel as well. And so he, he wants to have the temple established there, or excuse me, he wants to bring the ark. He wants God to be worshipped in Jerusalem. So first he builds his own palace. He builds his ark. Uh, he was living in his house, chapter 7, verse 1, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Things are looking up. The kingdom is unified, the, the, Jerusalem is the capital, David has a house to live in, and there's rest, there's peace from the surrounding enemies. And at this point, David turns to Nathan, who would be the prophet, his spiritual advisor, and he comes to him and he says this, See, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David comes to Nathan and he says, Think about this. Um, I'm living in this luxurious palace, a cedar house. That was a sign of luxury. And where is God? He's still in the tent. He's represented in this mobile tabernacle that has been for centuries torn down and packed up and moved and carried and dusty and... Perhaps they've replaced parts of it, but it couldn't be very impressive looking compared to the place that David would have lived in in his cedar house. And David thinks, 
why, why is this? And he comes to Nathan, and Nathan says, Nathan doesn't take any time to consider it. I mean, this is like a no-brainer. This is a great thing. He wants to do something great for God. He wants to give God a house to live in. Surely, the pagan nations around them had temples to their God. Why should the God of Israel, the one true God, be in a tent? Nathan doesn't even consider it. Absolutely. Go do all that is in your heart. Go make this happen. So the building plans are in place. It just makes sense. It's obvious. Go ahead and do this. And then look at what happens in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And for the next several verses, you're going to get God's reaction to David's thoughts. God tells David no. It's shocking. You get it told to us from the viewpoint of God talking to Nathan. And then down in verse 17, the, the narrator just simply tells us, so then Nathan goes and speaks all these words to David. Look at verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? What's going on here is, is God is saying, Are, really? You're the one who's going to build me a house. Are you the guy for that? You think I need a house from you. That's what God is saying. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Uh, God just kind of stops David in his tracks, and he has this message. And, and, and here's a principle that we can take. D.A. Carson says it this way. These, these verses are showing us that, that what, what's being illustrated here is a theologically true principle throughout Scripture. God himself takes initiative in the great turning points of redemptive history. And he will not have it any other way. God himself, for his own initiative, in the turning points of redemptive history, when God works to save his people, to bring about his plans, God's the one taking initiative. And he will not have it any other way. Here's God's message. Really, do I, do I need you? Tell me one time where I came to you. I've been just fine moving around in the tabernacle, and you think you're the one that's going to build me a house. Think about some of the other passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. Think how preposterous it would be if in that scenario, did Abraham come to God and say, you know, God, I've been thinking about things ever since Babel. This whole experiment called the human race is kind of going poorly. How about if you create for yourself a new people? I will, I'll volunteer. I promise to be faithful. You can call them, how about the Israelites? And boy, all kinds of great redemptive things could come from this, God. Pick me. I volunteer. That's not the way it worked. God says, I'm choosing you, Abraham, for all of my redemptive purposes. Think of David's own choosing as shepherd boy. Certainly, he was not Samuel's first choice. 
And yet God took initiative to say, this is the one I want for us in our own salvation. Think about the New Testament. How was it that God saved us? John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of us being dead in our trespasses and sins. But God was the one who, rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. In these turning points of redemptive history, God is the one himself who takes initiative. And God wants David to know, David, I, I, I am not dependent on you bringing about salvation. God will accomplish it in his own plans and his own ways. There's a second thing we need to note. Before we do that, let me just give one more caveat. These aren't all the reasons that God says no to David. Uh, elsewhere, we'll see that because David was a man of war, that that was one of the reasons God wouldn't allow him to build the temple. The problem was not in building the temple. It was an issue of timing. Uh, in fact, if you've come in the last six months, this won't make much sense, but if you've been here over a year, give me 60 seconds and then I'll come back. Last summer, we went through the book of Haggai. Do you remember when the temple was in ruins? So fast forward hundreds of years from this point, and, and God points out to the people, uh, you're living in luxurious houses and my temple is in ruins. What gives? You need to correct it. Now here we are in the opposite the, 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 shoe, the, the foot is on the other shoe, the shoe is on the other foot, however that saying goes. And David realizes, I'm in a luxurious house and God has no house. So the issue wasn't the temple, but had to do with heart motivation underneath. And certainly in the book of Haggai, you would have to say there was revealed instructions from God that were being ignored. That's not the case in David's scenario. David thinks he has to step in and initiate God's saving plan for him. God hasn't yet revealed these instructions, but David says, God, how about if I build a house for you? And yet God's the one who initiates redemptive, these turning points of redemptive history. So here's a second thing then that we need to note. Again, D.A. Carson says it this way, God makes his kings great, not the other way around. We need to think about that. God makes his kings great, Kings do not make God great. Look at verse 8, and this is in God's answer. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. God is the one who comes to David and says, look, I'm the one who took you from the pasture. I'm the one who made you the prince, the king over my people. I'm the one that's going to build a house for you. God is the one who makes his kings great. God was not dependent on David for a house. God did not need this from David. God is eternally self-sufficient. He's independent. Now, you know, there's a few guys helping me come together and study for the ordination council, so that means we get to dive into big, fun words that are hard to pronounce, and we've got to use definitions. So let me give you one that's helpful, because it, it, it's kind of fallen out of use, but I think that it's helpful for us to think about it. Um, this idea of God being independent is described by the word aseity. It, it's, it comes from the Latin, ase, which simply means 
that God is from or by himself. Herman Bovink said it this way, that God is what he is through or by his own self. So this concept, it speaks to God's independence, his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, and his self-containment. God doesn't need us. God is not up in heaven saying, wow, it's Saturday night. I can't wait for Sunday. I'm giddy. People haven't worshipped me for six days. I need their worship, right? God is not up in heaven saying, wow, that note was just a wee bit flat. And then he goes around, as you and I go around, with a bad hair day, feeling bad about ours. This is not who God is. He's eternally self-existent. Now, in any of this, this doesn't mean that God isn't personal. This doesn't mean that God doesn't desire a relationship with us, or even that God doesn't receive joy from our relationship with him. He's an intensely personal God who desires this close fellowship and relationship. But let us never forget the fact that God is not dependent on us as people. It's almost as if David is thinking, well, I could do God a favor. Now that things are well, now that there's peace and prosperity, let me help God out. Let me build for him a nice house. The text doesn't say that. We're not exactly sure what is in David's heart, but we've got to remember that God makes his kings great, not the other way around. There's a third thing that we need to think about that's going on in this passage. And it's simply this, coming back to that question that I started our sermon with this morning. David wasn't doing a work for God. God was doing a work in David. David wasn't the one building the house for God. God was going to build a house for David. Look, look then at verse um, 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here was God's message for David. You think you're going to build a house for me, David? I, God, the one who loved you, the one who chose you, the one who brought you out of the pasture, the one who appointed you prince over my people, I'm building you a house and it's going to extend far beyond your lifetime. It will be a forever house. From you will come a king, and there will be a forever kingdom. And so as we look at this promise that God makes to David, certainly on a zoomed-out picture, looking at the, the whole scale of redemptive history and the story of what God is doing in humanity, there are messianic promises in this passage. 
where God promises there's going to be a Messiah who will come. We're still waiting for some aspects of the fulfillment, but certainly initiated when Christ came. He's the king that is spoken of in this passage. But then also, let's, let's zoom in. Let's focus on David because in, in some ways, those promises, this covenant that God makes with David is one of the most central themes in this passage, but we'll leave that for another time. And I want to focus back in on the life of David. What is God doing in his heart and life? God is, God is the one who chose him there in the pasture. He's the one who made him the prince over his people. He's, God is the one who's continuing to shape and mold David and to grow him. So look at how David responds. Nathan goes and tells him everything and then look at verse 18. Then King David went in. Did you see it? Do you hear it? He went in and he sat before the Lord. Building plans over. Construction project canceled. It made perfect sense. The time is right. Build the temple. And David does nothing. There's this act of not doing. He sits before the Lord in great humility, and there's this great prayer. All through God's speech to David, from going back from verse uh, 5 all the way through 16, it's, I am God. I, 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 the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. I will do this. David now, from verse 18 through the end of the chapter, O Lord God, you, O God, you, Oh God, you. His focus is on God. He sits before God. He says, Who am I, O oh Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O oh Lord God. David comes and he sits and he stops his plans says, who am I? Can you imagine being the spiritual advisor that day to the most important person in a kingdom? And you walk up to him and you say, remember that construction project? Don't do it. How many people as advisors to the king, it would be off with their heads at that moment? David stops. He repents. He, he realizes, who am I? God, that you would do this for me and for my house. And so as we zoom in, one of the awesome things we see is that God is working on the heart of his shepherd. He, he, he's teaching him. He's training him. He's molding him. He wants him to realize, David, this is not a story about you and what you're going to do for me. This is a story about God and what God is going to do in the life of David. Over and over and over through the story of David, we have seen. David is not the hero of the story. It's a story about God and what he's doing in and through the life of David. And one more time, David gets it wrong. His perspective is off. He thinks God needs his help, just as Uzzah reached out to stabilize the ark, thinking God needed his help. And for whatever reason, there's grace. God uses Nathan to come into his life and to say, you think God needs you? No. 
I'm going to build you a house, is what God said. And so you look at this and you see, wow, here's God who loves David. He's shaping him. He's molding him. He wants him to catch and realize it's not about what David can do for God. It's about what God does through David. If you flip back to chapter 5, I, I, uh, that story of David conquering Jerusalem, there's, there's one phrase in chapter 5, verse 10, that I want to pick up that speak of the loving work of God in David's life. Look how God is working to teach him, to train him, to shape him, to mold him, which again, I'm coming back to that concept, as you are being spiritually formed by God. Let me put it this way. David, God loved David so much that he kept making David, David, who God made David to be. So as you keep growing as God would have you to be, not in sinful pursuit of I'm just going to go be myself, but as in, no, I, I want to respond to God and who he has me to be. Look at how God's working in David's life. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 10. So here he's, he's conquered Jerusalem, right? Now he's going to make Jerusalem his capital. Verse 9, David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built the city around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That phrase, what does it mean that David became greater and greater? The, the, the two words that are translated there, there are two words that are actually different words, so I'm not exactly sure why so many of our translations translate it identical. Some of your translations say for his, he, he became more and more powerful. Some of your translations say that David became greater and greater, but there's two different words that both have to do with this idea of becoming greater, but they can also also be translated that they, he, they came or that they walked or that they went. That idea of going or walking. There's one word that means to grow up or to become great. So inherent in this idea is growth or maturity that David was growing. One translator called it, a, a commentator said, a longer stride and a wider embrace. That, that David was growing longer, greater in his walk, in his stride, that there was growth and maturity. Those of you that are reading from the King James Version, I think is actually a helpful translation. David went on and grew great. He, here's the idea. At, uh, when God appointed David in Jerusalem over the unified city, what happened? It wasn't as if all of a sudden the Shekinah glory of God had come and the forever kingdom was established because David was the perfect king. We've seen David's faults. There's going to be more of them to come. But here's a man after the Lord's own heart, and we're going to look at what that means eventually, but here's a man who... He was growing. He was maturing. Why? Because the presence of the Lord was with him. And that's the love that God had for David. So coming back to 2 Samuel 7, David receives this message from God that it wasn't about what David could do for God. It was what God was doing in and through David and he needed to sit down. Let's think about application for you and I. You have this quote in your bulletin. Nathan's message to David is a reminder that God's larger purpose isn't always tied to our particular dreams. Sometimes we try to give ourselves to things that seem right but which do not reflect God's priority. We are all too bound by the present time 
and fail to realize that with us as with David, God's purposes for our lives reach into eternity. It's by Kenneth Chafin. Do you catch that? There are eternal things going on in your life. It's not just about you and your dreams and what you have planned for God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 speaks that, says that we as Christians look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Just a chapter later, in chapter 5, Paul says that the gospel controls us such that, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who for our sakes died and rose again. That as Christians, we need to be living for God and His kingdom and His purposes. And it's not about us and our plans and what we're doing for God. This process of being formed and shaped as a Christian is not one where you need to do for God. It's one where God is going to do in and through you to accomplish his plans and purposes in your life. So let me see if this just can be applied to a couple of different groups of people. There'd be many different ways this could be applied. But as you think about those of you that are in the workplace and in your career, and you think about your age, and is this where you want to be right now in your career? Is the title the career that you want to to have? Is the title the title you wanted to have? Is the paycheck the size of the paycheck you wanted to have? Is the position that you hold the one you wanted? Or do you even still hold that position? Perhaps it was taken away. And there can be this sense of frustration of what am I doing? I need to do what certainly this doesn't match my plans and dreams. But listen, if you have a job, Christian, it's not for your plans and dreams to be accomplished. The right question is not what are you doing for God in your career, but how is he using it to shape and mold you? What is he doing in and through you to reflect his glory to your coworkers around you, to, to uh, serve others through the services that your organization provides? That's the question to ask when it comes to your career. Perhaps, through, perhaps your health is not what it once was. Perhaps you're no longer doing the things you used to do, whether it's your health, an illness. Perhaps you're simply at the age where you look back and say, the things I used to do for God and now that's been taken away. Forgive me. <laughs> Didn't expect that to happen. The allergies are bad this time of year. Pollen's everywhere. It's crazy. So, here's the thing. It's not about what we do for God. It isn't. It's about what God is doing in and through us. And even those health trials are things that God's doing. Like, I love you. I'm shaping you. I'm molding you. I want your heart. Sit down before me. Sit down before me and see who God is. That's the beautiful thing. Let me speak to parents. You're tired. You're exhausted. You're sleep deprived. Okay. You 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 would lo you you're you're just exasperated at the end of the day, thinking, "What is going on? These kids, uh, they're not following my rules. They're not following my instructions. Whatever it is that is going on." And you think, "Am I? 
am I doing, you would love to sit down and contemplate if you're being effective as a parent, but you don't have time because there's another diaper to change, okay? Listen, you, this is not about what you can see right here in the hearts, uh, excuse me, in, in, in whether or not your children are following all of your rules and instructions perfectly. It's not about your kingdom. It's about God and what he's doing in the hearts and lives of your children. You're involved in the eternal process of shaping and molding their souls, but, but also God is using the struggles and trials of your children to shape you as his follower. It's not about what you're doing in the life of your kids as much as what God's doing in your heart and life through your kids. Sit down before God. Do some not doing in the life of your kids and say, God, wow, that you would entrust to me this privilege. What a great and glorious God that we serve. Are you trying to do things for God or is God doing things through you? Is it about what God's doing in and through your life? May that be true of us as a people because because this is what we rally around as a people. Uh, the eternal things of the gospel, that it's God, it's your glory, it's your kingdom. You are the one who will reign forever. He's the one we need to behold this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for what you do in our hearts and lives through the gospel. Encourage us, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.